Well, good morning, once again. Um, I'll say it again, even though I said it at the beginning. My name is Micah. I serve on staff here, working with student ministries and, and music ministries and a few other capacities. Um, and I get the privilege of, of preaching, once again. Um, so, first and foremost, we're going to be starting in the book of John. Uh, so, if you want to kind of get your finger there, we're going to be on in John 8, 1 through 11. It's on page 521 in the Pew Bible around you, so if you're looking for that, page 521, John 8 will be our starting point. But before we get there, a uh, couple of things. One, we're, in, we're at the end now, this is the last week of this theological tune-up series. Um, and as we've, we've said throughout, this is a different series than what we often do. And I, I want to make sure this is prefaced this way, just in case you're visiting, but also as we continue to think through this, we often and usually will pick a passage and walk through it, and that's our, we we approach preaching from an exegetical style. So we pick a book and we walk through that. We're going to start that soon in the Gospel of Mark, Uh, but this series is about trying to identify some of the things that we thought would be helpful for our congregation to think through um, and, and be reminded about what Scripture has to say about these larger issues. And so uh, we talked about the Bible, what it is, how we got it, why it's important. We talked about anxiety, and this week we're going to be talking about transgenderism. Um, And a note about last week and talking about anxiety, uh, something I want to mention. I got enough emails and positive uh, just thanks for for what that sermon was and how it it was uh, brought out to remind these are supposed to serve as the start of conversations for us. Um, you know, if you're, if you hear and you find yourself struggling with anxiety, that's not something to struggle with on your own. God has rescued us into community, and so I want to encourage you to let that be the start of a conversation, not the end of it, and the same is true of our topic today. Um, let this be the start of our conversation, not the end of it, because once again, these things are larger than 35-ish minutes, uh, give us the space to actually delve into Um, With that, a couple other caveats. As we think about transgenderism and and the LGBTQ plus movement, ideology, philosophy, however you want to frame that, a couple things I want to say. Uh, One, and and I pray that this will come through as we dig into the topic, uh, there is kind of a twofold approach to this as we think about it from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective. First, there is a, a critique of the overall philosophy that, that should happen. There, there is some room to critique that at a, at a large, kind of 30,000-foot view. But often, our individual response is we're engaging with people who have struggled with this, who are wrestling through this. Um, that's probably not the time and space to critique at a 30,000-foot view. It's time to be pastoral and shepherding in our response to those people. And so we're going to try and divide in that way, but know that there is kind of a pastoral response and a, and a critique, both of which are important. So we're going to try and walk that line carefully. And again, as we said last week, for some of us in the room, thinking about sexuality, thinking about sexual identity, thinking about LGBTQ+, and all the others, um, it's a thought experiment. It's not something we engage with on a daily basis. It's, it's, it's something that we think is important to be informed on, to have a biblical perspective on, but it's, it's primarily a thought, thought experiment. And for others, possibly in this room today, this is a real and constant struggle. 
and you're afraid to share where you're at because of a, a perception of how people will respond. Um, and so, so know that, that we see both sides of that and want to be a space where um, what you're struggling with can be talked about while still holding to the gospel and biblical truths. And so again, we'll walk through that in more clarity as we move forward, Lord willing. Um, but just want to say that. Um, and then again, in the same way that anxiety is a part of mental health at large, transgenderism is a part of a larger discussion. And so we probably won't get to everything. So if you're sitting there thinking, well, he didn't talk about this, and he didn't talk about that, and he didn't talk about, feel free to grab me afterwards. Let's have a conversation that is ongoing because this is, again, 35 minutes to talk about a pretty large thing. Um, and one of the things that I'm probably not going to get into too much is all of the terminology. And there is a lot of terminology that is kind of ever-changing. So if you've ever tried to study this and found it confusing, um, there's pretty good reason for that. It is confusing. Um, there are plenty of authors who have critiqued that and given some perspective on why they think it's confusing. Uh, one, Carl Truman, who I found very helpful, has said it, it feels a little bit like the goalposts are moving and we can't win. And that's, that's how the conversation has gone. It's, it's a very confusing thing, so I'm probably not going to dig too much into all of the terminology. Um, but just wanted to make you aware, I know there's a lot of terminology, so if you feel like I'm not using it correctly, I apologize. Give me some grace as I try to navigate this. Um, and then, lastly, uh, had a, we've had a conversation with Aaron Rivenberg, who oversees our children's ministry, and we want to send some resources out to parents and how to navigate this with kids, because I'm not going to be talking about that a whole lot in the sermon itself. So just know, parents, if you're like, well, how do I take this and talk to my kids about it? We're putting together some resources to send you so that uh, we can have that conversation. I think I set the stage appropriately. <laughs> Apologize. Thank you for bearing with me. Uh, would you stand as we read from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, and I think this will, this will give us a good framework for our conversation today. Starting in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when he heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. As you're seated, would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are the creator. That as we read Genesis 1 and 2, 
We don't see random acts of, of happenstance, but we see intentionality. We see a God who ordered his creation in specific ways. And as we keep reading, we see a world then marred by sin, marred by brokenness, and that what was good and very good was distorted. And the same is true as we think about what it means to be made in your image, what it means that you have made us male and female, Father, give us clarity as we think about this, as we talk through this, as we let your word inform us on these things. Give us clarity. Give us wisdom in how to live in response to those truths that we would be people full of grace and truth. Father, do in us the work that you only can do. Shape us change us, conform us to your image. Spirit, guide us into truth in order that we might reflect you and more faithfully follow you in this world. In your name we pray. Amen. I think the first thing is we think about transgenderism and what it means to be a follower of Christ in the midst of a world with varying philosophies and and ways of thinking. The first thing we have to do is affirm what it means that we are made in the image of God. Because with this this idea of the image of God, uh, a few things immediately come to the forefront. One, all people are made with dignity and purpose But as it relates to our conversation today, all people are made with a a specific identity. And this is the word that kind of gets thrown around and and, and shifted as we think about this topic. But, But as we think about the image of God, it's about, partly about our identity and what it means to be human. And, and more broadly then, as we think about the LGBTQ plus world view, there is a shift in our thinking that needs to be made if it has not already. As I've read books and articles from various perspectives, as I've interacted with people on maybe both sides of this issue, um, one of the things that has been made clear to me is that for some, this is a question of behavior. And so as we approach it, we say, hey, you shouldn't act this way, right? We think about that or hear that maybe quite a bit. We shouldn't act in this way. And so we think about it from the lens of behavior. And so the question becomes, is it sinful to act or behave as a transgender individual? That's, That's the way we approach it. However, for others, and I think what is primarily in scope when, when most people who are in the midst of it, in the thick of it, who agree with the LGBTQ plus movement, they're not talking about behavior. They're talking about identity. This is who I am. And so one of the questions that I think we need to ask 
is where does this identity come from? Uh, one note, I'm probably going to reference a lot of resources throughout this, and if you'd like access to them, I've got a stack of books right here and a bunch of articles and podcasts that I've been listening to this week. Um, so if you want some more resources on this, again, feel free to reach out. But one of the things that I've been helped by, uh, one of the individuals I've been most helped by is Carl Truman and his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, it is a look at how we came to be where we are in this cultural moment. And it's, it's helpful uh, to see this idea of identity traced, or as, as Truman will refer to it, the self. And it was once constructed, our identity was once primarily constructed by things outside of ourselves. And so schools helped to form us to live in society. The church forms us, God forms us. These outside things are the primary tools by which identity was formed. Carl Truman, in his book, traces this idea that identity shifted from being formed externally to being a result of my feelings. I feel this way, therefore this is my identity. This is who I am. And so people aren't looking to be shaped by something external and find their place in society. Rather, people are announcing who they are and looking for those places in society to affirm who they are. So it's not, help me find my identity. It's, this is my identity, affirm it. Okay, so that is an important shift that has occurred over several hundred years. And that not only is identity now viewed as primarily an internal construction, it's also been shaped by this, these hundreds of years of thinking. And one of the capstone philosophies that has shaped this thinking, according to Truman, and you can, you can read his book and trace it, um, trace it along with him, is Sigmund Freud. Not often mentioned in the church on Sunday morning. Now, to be clear, Sigmund Freud and all, a lot of his ideas have been debunked. And I think rightfully so. Um, when he is studied in psychology and courses today, it's more about history and seeing this movement. But one of the things that Freud espoused that has stuck is this idea that we are primarily in our makeup as people, sexual beings. I don't think he's right. Maybe I should say that plainly, but that's, that's where he, he came from. Carl Truman said this. With Freud, there was a move from understanding sex as an activity to seeing it as absolutely fundamental to identity. So again, we're not talking about behavior. We're talking about who am I? And we see this shift having occurred. We see this shift having occurred. And so that is just a, a bit. Um, Carl Truman, it's not a small book, just to be clear. Um, but he traces all this in greater detail and would greatly encourage you to read this. I think this gives a helpful critique on where we are, how we got to where we are, uh, but would encourage you to take a look. There is a, a abridged version of that that's more accessible if you don't want to read his kind of large thing, but uh, would love to give you access to those resources. Anyway, continuing. Um, the important thing that comes out of this is this idea that, that we should recognize the primary source of identity. 
as, as culture sees it now, it is not about being told who we are. It's about you affirming who I am. This is how I feel. This is my sense of things. So you affirm me. So we as the church then need to ask, where does identity actually come from? Let me share another quote from J. Allen Branch, pastor, professor of ethics, that, that is helpful again. He says this, Because God existed before us, and we are made in God's image, a proper understanding of ourselves begins with correctly understanding God. Transgenderism as a movement inverts this order. It attempts to grasp at an understanding of gender beginning with our subjective feelings, but correctly understanding gender does not begin, but correctly understanding gender does not begin with us, it begins with God who made us. So we need to flip the script back as we think about identity, as we think about gender, as we think about having these conversations. It's not about behavior for most people. It's about identity. And so our question is not, is this sinful? We'll get there. I think it, it, it is. But it comes from a place of hurt and brokenness when it comes to identity. So as we engage with people, this is the, the framework we need to come from. And so we find ourselves at, at a point of needing to briefly think about what it means to be made in the image of God as male and female. And in some ways, though the LGBTQ plus movement would disagree with a lot of what I'm about to say, they also affirm that there is a distinction between male and female that I think is important. Uh, Carl Truman's research began with a question, how did we get to a point where someone could say, I feel like a male trapped in a female's body? and not only be normalized, but the predominant and accepted view. But do you, do you hear in that statement, even this idea of affirming, there's a distinction here. To say, I feel like one gender trapped in the body of another gender, identifies the fact that there are, in fact, two genders. Now, the conversation has widened for some people beyond just the two to be non-binary or other, other distinctions, but I think as we evaluate the movement, and, and this is our 30,000-foot view critique, we see that there is an affirmation of, of gender. So, where does that distinction come from? Genesis 1, 26-27. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Not going to get into all the nuances of the distinction between male and, and female this morning, but our identity as, as people, as gendered beings, we talked a little bit about being embodied last week with, with anxiety and how anxiety can sit sometimes in the physical, not just in the, the mind or the non-physical, in the spiritual part of who we are. Uh, in the same way, we, as being embodied people, God made us embodied and gendered. And that is part of how he 
expects us, enables us to then steward his creation. He says, go and multiply, fill the earth. That does not happen. To go and multiply does not happen apart from this gender binary, to have two genders which God made in order for us to rightly steward his creation and subdue and fill the earth. And so he has made us male and female. So to go back to last week, our biblical anthropology, there it is again, the fun word, a study of what it means to be human, we said that there is a a physical, the body, and a non-physical. Again, not getting into the dichotomy, trichotomy, are we two, are we three, not digging into that, just simply looking at this idea that we are uh, physical and non-physical. And what we see in, in transgenderism is a distorted view of this. Because they will affirm the non-physical and the physical, right? I feel the non-physical like one thing trapped in the body, the physical, of another. And so we begin to see this, but as we talked last week, we're not supposed to see these as distinct. We are to be whole, complete people, right? So we're not supposed to view the body, the spirit, the soul as completely distinct because we will have a physical body in the new creation. We are to be whole people. Now, while transgenderism affirms some of these complexities and we say we're to be whole people, we might then ask the question, well, don't they, aren't they onto something? Aren't those who agree with the transgender LGBTQ plus movement onto something in that if there's a disconnect between how I feel and my body, shouldn't I change my body to then affirm how I feel so those things are in line? So that we are whole people? Aren't they aimed in the right direction? Now, they are maybe aimed in the right direction in one sense, to be whole, complete, but they're aimed in the wrong direction in another sense. See, we've already found that identity is to be found in God, not in our sexual preference. And to find identity in sexual preference is is to find it not how God intended. And so, we see the beginnings, we've seen the beginnings of a biblical response to this, and that in transgenderism, as it is fully realized, there is an irreparable damage done to the body that, that breaks the creation even further. So as we think about what it means to be made in the image of God and to steward creation well, to affirm the transgender movement is to affirm something that God would not affirm because God has created us specifically. So what do we do with this disconnect? And, and maybe one other quote to, to help before we get there. Uh, author Ryan Anderson um, has a chapter of his book that he talks through the stories of people who transitioned and then detransitioned. So they, they went through a process of transitioning because they felt this disconnect between body and the physical and the non-physical. They felt this disconnect. And then he tells their stories and he, he summarizes. He says, the stories recounted in this chapter tell us at a minimum that transitioning is not the, quote, only solution to gender dysphoria. They tell us furthermore that trying to align the body with a transgender identity does not resolve the deep issues that led to alienation from one's own body. So here's, here's the crux of it. In seeking to be whole, to align the non-physical with the physical, 
It doesn't actually fix the issue to approach it and say, I need to change my body. And as this author critiques even that, he says, at best, what's happening is not an actual change of your body. It's a change of appearance. There's a lot about our bodies that we can't actually change. Uh, And so to approach it from, I must change physically, we've approached it from the wrong perspective. Author Rosaria Butterfield says that for people in, in these places, the primary sin is not the behavior. The primary sin is not belief, not having a belief in God. And so the, the fix to the problem is not to change the body. The fix for the problem is to turn first to God, to correct identity in that not finding it in self or feelings which are fleeting, but it is this change in identity to be fixed in Christ. To have belief in what he has done and so come into salvation and his forgiveness. And so to affirm the image of God is to understand that we are whole people, that we have a physical aspect of our nature and a non-physical aspect of our nature, but those aren't to be separated, they are to be united. God has made us as whole people. Again, Greg Allison's book, um, we talked about last week, kind of walks through the theology of that. And the fix to this disconnect that some of us might feel is not to change the body. It's to find our identity first and foremost in Christ. And so we affirm what God has done in us, through us, through Christ, and we recognize that this disconnect that we feel is a result of the fall. It is not how things are supposed to be. But I also recognize that this disconnect has led to a lot of hurt. That, that we feel that, again, maybe some of us in this room feel a disconnect between the non-physical and the physical has led to a lot of hurt. But let me say clearly, hope is not found in altering our physical self. It is found only in the God who cares for the broken. And God does care for the broken. God cares for the the poor, the hurting, some who are called the marginalized, which is a word that has a lot of connotations, and we'll we'll dig into some of it. But but look at Luke chapter 4, verse 18. This is the start of Jesus' ministry. And he quotes from the book of Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim Liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so part of Jesus' ministry was to reach people who society had pushed to the outskirts. People who were poor, people who were hurting, people who were broken, people who had no hope. And I think for, for those struggling with gender dysphoria and identity and all of these things, they feel a lot of those same things. They feel hopeless, they feel broken, they feel pushed to the side. Maybe not in our current cultural moment in the same way they had been previously, but they're still hurt. 
And as we consider Christ's mission to the poor, the oppressed, the outcast, the marginalized, there are a few things we should think through. First, how did Christ accomplish that mission? Second, how do we follow his example? We could look throughout the Gospels to see how Christ interacted with these these types of people, but I want to focus on the one that we read already, the woman caught in adultery. And I think this story reveals some errors that have maybe occurred on both sides of, of, of this topic. Read it again for us. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came to the temple. All the people came to him. He sat down, taught them. Scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said this to test him. They might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, so Jesus gets down, he's writing in the sand, and these people are like, Jesus, what are you going to do with this woman? Come on. She's here. What are you going to do? And he's writing in the sand. He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down, wrote in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Jesus was left alone with the woman, standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So here is this woman, caught in the act of adultery, to say nothing of the man. Leave him out of the story, apparently. But she's caught in the act, and they're coming seeking condemnation. Right? They approach this broken, hurt woman. We don't get a lot of the backstory of her, but I think we, we can, based on the culture, we can make some assumptions that she is not necessarily in this life by choice, but by, from her own estimation, necessity. She has no other opportunity. She has no other choice of how to maybe make ends meet. And people come looking for condemnation against this adulterous woman. And by law, by the law of Moses, she's, she's caught, and like they said, she should be stoned. And Jesus' response is surprising. As people seeking the condemnation walk away one by one. Jesus left alone with this woman. He says, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? And she responds, no one, Lord. No one, no one condemns me. And at the end of the interaction, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now, from now on, sin no more. As I've read stories from those who have gender dysphoria and, and maybe affirm the LGBTQ plus movement, what they're looking for is the first half of Jesus' sentence. Neither do I condemn you. But sometimes those of us who who disagree with the movement and have critiques of the movement, we come in kind of swinging. We come in with the second half of the sentence. Go and sin no more. But Jesus' response is both and. And he offers hope to this woman trapped in her circumstance not knowing what to do without hope, and Jesus comes offering it. And he does this not by affirming her actions, nor by discrediting her completely. 
He welcomes without affirming. He says, neither do I condemn you. You are welcome here. Go and sin no more. What you are doing is wrong. Welcome without affirmation. Without saying what you are doing is right. And this is, the ado- uh, uh, this is the attitude I think we as believers need to adopt as we think about these things at large. How do we welcome the hurting, the broken, the people who need the gospel, us included, without affirming those things? And it's hard in an age where to not be affirming of things is to say I, the feeling that they get in response is, well, you don't like me as a person. You're, you're not agreeing with my identity. So it's tricky. Don't hear me say it's not difficult to navigate, but there is hope in the gospel. There is a better story for identity than what is offered by culture, and it's identity found in Christ. And so what Jesus does in John 8 is living out John 1, which says that he is the son from the father, full of grace and truth, to be people of both, not one or the other. And one, one maybe final note for those who are hurting and for those who are having friends and, and family who are struggling with this and we don't know how to respond. Uh, a phrase that has been used in some of the articles that I read this week is this idea of the long arc of redemption. We talked a little bit about it last week, but it's this idea that, that God is working, God is moving, God is doing something, And it's not always as immediate as we'd like it to be. Sometimes God's restoration is in his time. It's not on our timetable, it's on his. And so if you are sitting here and you're hurting, and you're like, I don't know when this will end, neither do I. Outside of knowing that God has prepared a place, a redeemed creation, and the end of the story is that we get a new heavens and a new earth where there is no more pain and suffering. And so there may be long suffering now because the end is perfection. So where does that leave us? One, we understand what it means to be made in the image of God as male and female. We affirm the image of God. We recognize that God's heart is for the broken. I did not come for the the healthy, but for the sick, right? God is here for the broken and the wounded to offer hope and healing found only in Christ. But that leaves us as believers living as exiles. For some of us, we might feel like what was once considered marginalized is no longer marginalized, but the predominant view, and we feel like we are marginalized. I understand and and hear that. And I think Scripture would say we are sort of supposed to. Scripture often calls the followers of God exiles and sojourners, aliens and outsiders. And as followers of Christ, we are to engage difficult topics with grace and with truth. We welcome without necessarily affirming, and we live as examples of Christ displaying the gospel through our actions. And we should not be surprised when doing that leads us to feel like outsiders, because we are. 
If you've ever visited a country not your own, it feels weird. I've used this example before, but it feels, you go and you're like, I know I don't belong here, right? They're speaking a different language, they're different, using different words, they're eating different food, they're, I, I think time is important. For some reason, time doesn't matter here. I, I don't know, I don't get culture, I don't get it. As believers, we should feel kind of the same out-of-placeness in this world because this world is not our home, right? And so we should not be surprised when following Christ's example, when living how Christ calls us to live leads us to feel like aliens and strangers because that is what God says we are, right? I go to prepare a place for you, not here, somewhere else. There is a redeemed new creation But if we are growing in Christ-likeness, then Lord willing, we will be shaping our culture, but as aliens and sojourners, we will likely feel like outsiders. As outsiders, we are to confront the philosophies of our day, the worldviews of our day, but part of how we confront is by entering in with empathy and questioning. You see, people come hurting and broken, and in my experience, just, just personally, as I've engaged with people on this topic, I feel the need to kind of be on the back foot and be defensive. That's just my gut reaction. As someone comes and confronts my thinking, I'm like, oh, I got to defend. And so I come out swinging because I feel like I have to be defensive. But we have the better story. We have the true story. We have the gospel of Christ, which means we don't need to be on the defensive. We need to be empathetic. We considered last week Hebrews 4, and I think it applies here again. Christ knows our weakness because he experienced our weakness. Now, we can't necessarily experience the hurt that everyone who has struggled with this has felt, But that doesn't mean we shouldn't ask questions and enter in. Because if we don't enter in, if we don't have conversation, if we don't genuinely care for people, then the truth that we proclaim probably won't be received very well. I've been thinking about this quote this week. Read it in one of these articles. Nate Collins, writer for Christianity Today, said, We'll never reach them with biblical truth without first understanding their experiences. We'll never reach them with biblical truth without first understanding their experiences. And so instead of when confronted with different ideologies and philosophies that are not true, that are not biblical, that are not from God, our response isn't to be defensive and attacking. I think our response is to be compassionate. Paul, when writing to Timothy, uh, once said of people who are different, who are arguing, he says they are captive by Satan to be used by him for his purposes. And so as we think about people struggling, people hurting, people pushing against us, our response is not to be defensive, but compassionate to see what God is doing and how God wants to use us in that moment. And so we learn to ask questions. We learn to have empathy. We learn to enter into the pain and the suffering and the hurting so that we can proclaim the truth and they know we care. I want to end with a story from Rosaria Butterfield and maybe one, one challenge. Rosaria Butterfield was a uh, professor uh, of women's rights 
at Syracuse University, and, and she, before her conversion, uh, proclaimed the LGBTQ plus message, affirmed it, sought to help people live it out, and then she was, was converted. But her conversion didn't come through attacks by believers. It didn't come through strong apologetics. Strong apologetics is good and helpful and right, but, but that wasn't how her conversion came. Her conversion came because a pastor and his wife welcomed her into their home. Sure, they talked about the Bible and they talked about life, but they became friends, first and foremost. They entered into her story, became a part of her life, and when her world fell apart, she went to the only place she knew she could go because regardless of the different ideologies that they had, regardless of the different beliefs that they had, this pastor loved her well and welcomed her into his home And so when her world fell apart, that's where she went. And we need to be be people who, as we build friendships, and we should be building friendships with people of different philosophies, different ideologies, different beliefs than ours. But as we build those friendships, having an eye towards what is God going to use me for in this moment? How is God going to use me to proclaim the truth of the gospel? To, to correct a broken identity with the true identity that comes only from God. Rosaria Butterfield, on leaving the gay community, was actually shocked because she thought in leaving that community and entering the church, she would have a, a community just as strong. And in her experience, it wasn't. And so part of how we think about transgenderism and, and the, the larger movement behind it, part of what we need to think about is what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be a welcoming yet not affirming community of believers that when someone of a different viewpoint comes into our space, they feel welcomed if not challenged, right? We're not going to bend on the truth of Scripture, the truth of the gospel, what it means to be made in the image of God, what it, emer- it means to to affirm a biblical sexual ethic. We're not going to bend on those things, but we need to be welcoming in the midst of them so that when someone maybe leaves the the community that they've been in and are looking for hope, the community that we offer, that Christ has built, that Christ has made us to be, is evident to them. So part of the better story that we have is that of being the church. God rescues us into community where we live out the many one another commands of the Bible. We care, we offer healing by living out the realities of the gospel, pointing back to Christ who knows our hurt and in his time is faithfully bringing about restoration to the way, back to the way things ought to be. So we need to think about these things with care, but we need to be unbending on the truth of the gospel. We need to be people of grace and truth. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the realities that identity is fixed and can be found in you and only in you. That you have made us in your image and that gives us purpose, dignity, and identity. And that identity isn't fleeting like the identity this world offers. And yet, 
Father, as we live out that identity, we recognize that those who are not in you are hurting and broken. And our response is not to be defensive and come out swinging, but to be, to be compassionate, to enter in and offer the hope that comes from relationship with you, that you alone can restore and redeem that which is broken. Father, help us to be that kind of community. In your name we pray. Amen.